brothers, how are you? Great to see you. I know this has been the drill for many of you all semester, but if you're relatively new to study, I'm Robbie Higginbottom, one of the pastors here, and if you're just jumping in, we're so glad you're here. I would love to help you connect at our church if you're, if you're interested in that. I wanted to let you know that even though next week is Thanksgiving week, we are meeting next week. So please come if you're in town and are able to come. We would love to continue getting in the Word together. Have one announcement for today. As you think about uh, your closet and things around the house, there's an opportunity to bless some people. Uh, a PCPC member is collecting men's gently worn clothing for one of our ministry partners called Our Calling, which you may be familiar with. That's a PCPC ministry pr partner that provides clothes and faith-based discipleship for men who are homeless. And so if you're looking around your closet or your house and you have any pants or shirts or sweaters or jackets, etc., that are in good sort of gently worn condition, you can bring those with you on a Tuesday morning. Next Tuesday would be great. The following Tuesday would probably work as well. And our PCPC member will collect those items and take them to our calling. If you want to know more about Our Calling, you can go to www.ourcalling.org. Just a simple way to bless some people in this holiday season. So that's all I have for this morning in terms of announcements. I want to start this morning as we wake up just by reading uh, in Colossians 3. This is our third lesson from Colossians 3. Uh, what I'm covering in verses 12 through 17 really follows on what comes before. So I want to read those sections that Paul Goebel has covered the last couple weeks, help us to wake up hear God's word, and then we'll dive in. So let's turn our attention to God's word. This is Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let's pray. Thank the Lord for his word. Father, we thank you for your word for us this morning. We thank you that it is alive and active. It's able to cut us to the heart and change us. We pray this morning by your spirit, you might help us to see 
the glory of Christ. Lord, and as we think about what it means to grow and change and be in Christ, that you would show us what it looks like, not just to put off, but to put on Christ. So be with us, Lord. We pray that this would be a morning that something clicks. You open our eyes, help us to see, give us grace to understand and apply your word. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. I want to try to remind you of a few of the things Paul Goebel's covered the last couple weeks. I think that's a really helpful foundation for today. So in general, this would be Paul's argument in chapter three. If you've died with Christ, if you've been raised with Christ, if you will one day be glorified with Christ, seek the things that are above. That's chapter three, verse one. Set your minds on the things that are above. That's chapter three, verse two. And Paul, I thought was really helpful, Paul Goebel saying, what if all this that we have in here is true? What if all this stuff about the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ, what if it's really true? What if this world that we can apprehend with our senses is not all that there is? What if, what if Christ really is our life? That changes everything. And so based on our new identity in Christ, Paul is inviting us to focus on that. Not to settle for life down here below, if you will. So are we seeking and setting our minds on things above, on Christ? As Christians, we're called to follow what we believe, follow the truth to its logical conclusion. I want to give you an example from the other side, from the other perspective, someone who was not a Christian. This is from Oliver Wendell Holmes, and he once wrote this. He says, there's no reason for attributing to a man a significance different in kind from that which belongs to a baboon or a grain of sand. The world has produced me and the rattlesnake, but I will kill it if I get the chance, and the only reason is because it is incongruous to the world I want, the world we're all trying to make according to our own power. Now that sounds jarring. <laughs> it probably should. But you know there's something admirable about that because Oliver Wendell Holmes is actually following his beliefs to their logical conclusion. He doesn't believe in God. This world is all there is for him. So he is simply chasing this belief to its logical conclusion. He's seeking the things below, if you will. He's letting, uh, or he's setting his mind on earthly things. He believes this is all there is. And so he reduces life to this power struggle where he uses his power to create the world that he wants. So he's done like the rattlesnake, killed a rattlesnake. And we've seen that, you know, in various philosophies and countries of the world throughout the 20th century and beyond will kill them if they don't fit with our view of how the world should be. So most people in the world won't follow their beliefs to their logical conclusion. It's just too dark and depressing because we all need hope that our lives are not meaningless, that this is about more than survival of the fittest. So with that backdrop, don't you see that if we're in Christ, we have so much to offer the world, but we have to think it through is what Paul's saying. We have to set our minds on it. This life of fullness in Christ that Paul is describing, it doesn't just magically appear. We don't just drift into it. So Paul is inviting us to dwell on these things, to grow up into them, to seek Christ who is our life. That's the first four verses. And then as he goes on, what you talked about last week, as we set our minds on things above, as we focus on Christ, the Holy Spirit is going to reveal to us things that need to change. So it makes sense that Paul's next instruction, verses 5 through 11, is to put sin to death. 
So last week, Paul Goebel broke this down into sins of desire, which Paul outlines first, and then sins of division. And it's helpful to see that idolatry is at the root of those sins of desire. And usually it's not that we desire bad things. It's actually that we desire good things just too much. So we take the good things, the good gifts of God's creation and turn them into ultimate things. So sex, which is good, or money, which obviously can be useful and good, or power or a person becomes our idol. And the good gifts of God become distorted and they become dangerous in our lives. And idolatry is at the root of our sins of division too. We make an idol of ourselves or of our community or of being right or being in charge. And so we're willing to do damage to these relationships and the unity of the body of Christ if we're talking about the church. Now, Jesus prayed and Jesus died to make us one body in him. It's important that we realize how quickly we can divide or try to divide what Christ has united. So it makes sense that Paul says we must put these things to death. We've died with Christ. So the old self was crucified with him and we've been raised with Christ. So there's a new self that was raised with him. We're a whole new person in Christ. So the controlling metaphor in this part of Colossians 3 moving into our passage today is this picture of putting on the new self. In Christ, we've put off the old self with its practices, Paul says, and we've put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. God wants us to look more and more like Jesus. And that brings us to our text for this morning. So as we dive in, the first words we read in Colossians 3.12 are put on. So I want to ask, what does it mean to put on? I want to share a couple insights that have helped me the most through the years when it comes to this. Clearly, the metaphor is one of getting dressed. We, we put to death or put off sin. We're getting out of these clothes. They don't fit anymore. They're not appropriate anymore for who we are in Christ. I don't want to wear that anymore. I don't want to live like that anymore. And we put on the things that Paul outlines here, which compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, forgiveness, etc., but to simplify for now, let's just say Paul is calling us to put on Christ. So what does it mean to put on Christ? And how does putting on Christ relate to putting off sin? So the first insight I want to share is from Thomas Chalmers. You may be familiar with the name. He was a Scottish minister who lived from 1780 to 1847. And he wrote this little paper, which you can find all online, called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. Expulsive in that it like pushes something out. The Expulsive Power of a new, new Affection. So here's his basic argument. You can't convince my heart not to love the world or the things of the world by simply telling me how worthless the world is. You can't get me to put sin to death just by telling me that sin is bad. Because if my heart is a throne, and let's say I worship money, you can't say, get money off the throne and not replace it with something else. You can't leave nothing on the throne. And so here's how Thomas Chalmers says it. He says, if the way to disengage the heart from the positive love of one great and ascendant object is to fasten it in positive love to another, then it's not by exposing the worthlessness of the former, but by addressing to the mental eye the worth and excellence of the latter, that all old things are to be done away and all things are to become new. The only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. 
So we see the expulsive power of a new affection every day. Think about how did how do we get over the girl who broke our heart? Assuming we did get over her. <laughs> it wasn't by sitting around and thinking about how bad she was. What probably happened is another woman came along and we grew to love her so much that we almost forgot the woman who came before. Or maybe this is a little easier to swallow. Why did you love your iPhone 7 and now you don't even think about it anymore? Because now you have an iPhone 13. It's totally eclipsed that old piece of junk. So often we try to put off sin without putting on Christ. We try to stop doing things because we feel guilty about it or maybe it's somehow hurting us personally or professionally. You remember what the false teachers were, were telling the Colossians? Things like, well, it's all about just avoiding this or it's all about just observing this or it's all about self-denial. Don't taste that. Don't touch that. But putting off without putting on doesn't get to the heart of the matter. And if it doesn't get to the heart, real transformation doesn't happen. So we need to be careful here as we start to understand the expulsive power of a new affection because Christ isn't always the new affection that's changing us. Just think about a young man who partied hard in college. Maybe those were sins of desire that served him well in college because he was popular and he was having fun, but now he's 23 and he needs a job and he needs money. So he stops partying, why? To get serious about his career in real estate, let's say. So has he really changed from a Christian perspective? On the surface, it may look like he's changed because he stopped partying, but there's a good chance that he just traded one idol for another. You know, trade hedonism or trade those sins of desire for materialism, put off one sin, put on another, but he didn't necessarily put on Christ. So the second insight is similar to this, probably rooted in the first. In his book, Counterfeit Gods, Tim Keller says it this way, he says, idols cannot simply be removed. That would be like putting off. They must be replaced. That's putting on. And he says, Jesus must become more beautiful to your imagination, more attractive to your heart than your idol. That is what will replace your counterfeit gods. If you uproot the idol and fail to plant the love of Christ in its place, the idol will grow back. It may take a different form, may attach to something else, but the idol will grow back. So brothers, what's your strategy for growing in Christ? What's your strategy for putting sin to death? If you're just trying to stop doing bad things, it won't work. And what's beautiful about this is it leads us to a place of dependence, maybe even desperation. Lord, I'm crying out to you for the expulsive power of a new affection. I'm crying out to you that you would give me a love for Christ that's greater than my love for sin and drives it out. Some of you are familiar with Augustine, the church father. He, he's the one who famously said, you made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. And he understood that restlessness because before Christ worked in his life, he was deeply addicted to sexual sin. And if I had more time, I'd tell more story, but his conversion story is really the story of an expulsive power of a new affection. Before his conversion, this is what he said happened. He says, I went to Carthage where I found myself in the midst of a hissing cauldron of lust. And he jumped into it. He says, my real need was for you, my God, who are the food of my soul. I was not aware of this hunger. 
So just imagine what that life looked like in Carthage. But then God worked a miracle in Augustine, just like he has for many of us. The Lord opened his eyes and regenerated his heart. And now here's how Augustine described what God did in his life. Listen to this. He says, how sweet all at once it was for me to be rid of those fruitless joys which I had once feared to lose. Isn't that beautiful? That's how he thinks about the sin that he used to love. Those were fruitless joys that I once feared to lose. How does that happen? You drove them from me. You who are the true, the sovereign joy. You drove them from me and took their place. You who are sweeter than all pleasure, though not to flesh and blood. You who outshine all light, yet are hidden deeper than any secret in our hearts. You who surpass all honor, though not in the eyes of men who see all honor in themselves. And he says, O oh Lord, my God, my light, my wealth, and my salvation. The Lord drove those sinful desires and fruitless joys out of his life. The Lord drove them out and took their place. Jesus became what he calls his sovereign joy. There was a putting off and there was a putting on. Have you experienced the expulsive power of a new affection? Do you want to? Paul writes in Romans 13, 14, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So that's a word about putting on. Who's called to put on Christ? Look at verse 12 again. Paul addresses believers as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. He says, put on, and then it's like, okay, put on, but let me remind you who you are. Chosen ones, holy and beloved. As we've seen so many times, Paul roots this command in a gospel reality. Put on Christ. Why? Because you're God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. It's so easy for us to miss how significant this is right here. In Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 through 8, this is what Moses tells the people of Israel. For you're a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you are the fewest of all peoples, but it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. The doctrine of election that offends our Western individualistic thinking is actually incredibly comforting. God did not choose Israel because they were great or powerful or worthy. He chose them to demonstrate his glory and his grace. He set his love on them, not because of who they were, but because of who he is. And that's hard to understand, but that's right there. These were, they, they didn't earn being chosen and holy and beloved. These were precious gifts from a sovereign, gracious God. Now, Paul takes that language, which the Jews said, that's us. He takes that language about Israel and applies it to the church, to Jews and Gentiles. Christian, he chose you. He made you holy. You are his beloved. You did nothing to earn this. You were dead in your sins, but God made you alive together with Christ. So whether you're Jew or Gentile, male or female, slave or free, now you are in Christ. You have a new story, a new family, a new identity. This is what grounds the call to put on Christ. Do you believe that you are God's chosen ones, holy and beloved? This morning, at whatever time it is this morning, it's too early. You are chosen if you're in Christ, holy and beloved. What if this is really true? What would it look like today if you believed what God says 
about you. And one more thing, we don't simply share this identity with Israel. <laughs> we share this identity with Jesus. Jesus was chosen, holy, and beloved. We won't chase all those references, but just think about Jesus' baptism. In Matthew 1.16, it says, when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him, and behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. At the beginning of his ministry, the father reminded Jesus of his identity. Jesus was the father's beloved son. That was the core of who he was. The father was well pleased with him. We're not sons of God in the same way that Jesus is the son of God, but we are sons of God, children of God in him. And at the beginning of our day, the father is reminding us of our identity so hear him speaking over you. If you're in Christ, you are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. If you're in Christ, you are chosen, holy, and beloved. Now, if that's who we are, what are we called to put on? This is verses 12, really up through 14 and beyond. We've already said a summary statement would be we're putting on Christ. But just like in Galatians 5, the fruit of the spirit passage, Paul gives us a list of character traits. Now, these are things we need to say that are exemplified in Jesus himself that should be growing in those who are filled with his spirit. So Paul mentions compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other, love and peace. Contrast those, go back a few verses and think about the sins of division and then contrast those with these. In Galatians 5, and 23, Paul writes, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These two lists are not the same, but they're working in the same way. And there are similarities, including some shared words like love, peace, kindness, and patience. So how do we approach lists like this? I think some of us tend to look at these like a scorecard. You know, like, okay, I can be fairly compassionate. <laughs> but I'm not humble, or I'm patient to a point, but I struggle to forgive people. And I don't think that's what Paul intended. There's a unity to the fruit of the Spirit. In Galatians 5, Paul says the fruit of the Spirit, not the fruits of the Spirit are. So if Paul were writing our table questions this morning, he would ask, is the fruit of the Spirit growing in you? Not which of the fruits are growing in you? And I don't know if you see the difference, but what I'm saying is we can't cherry pick the ways in which you're going to be conformed to the image of Christ. One of the signs that is actually growing in us is, is when we see things that usually don't go together because there's a unity in the fruit of the spirit. It grows up together. So for example, you might be naturally bold and courageous, but you're not gentle. So you could be tempted to think, Man, my boldness is a fruit of the Spirit, but that's just the way God made you. The evidence of God's grace would be your boldness tempered by kindness, let's say. So you're becoming tough and tender, just like Jesus was. Or the opposite could be true. You might be naturally kind, but you're not faithful or bold. You could be tempted to think, oh, my kindness is a fruit of the Spirit, but that's just the way God made you. Like, for me, I'm kind of a nice person, you know? 
That may not necessarily be a fruit of the Spirit. The evidence of God's grace would be your kindness tempered by faithfulness. So you're not just nice to everyone. You have the fortitude to remain faithful even when people don't treat you well. And that would be more like Jesus. So can you see it? The fruit of the Spirit's a package deal. In Christ, we don't get part of the Spirit or part of the fruit. We get all of it. So if all of it's not growing up in our lives, we should wonder whether any of it is growing in a healthy way. So Paul's calling us to put on the character of Christ, to grow up in his likeness. How do we do that? I want you to explore this in your groups, but I'm going to say it kind of simply. It starts with seeing how Jesus has loved us, and then we seek to love others the way he has loved us. So look at this list in verse 12, and I'll ask you some questions, and then chase this in your groups. How has Jesus demonstrated a compassionate heart towards you? How has he suffered with you? How has he suffered for you? How has Jesus showed you kindness? How has he been gentle and kind when you deserved something different? Or how has Jesus modeled humility towards you? Think of Philippians 2. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross for us. How has Jesus exemplified meekness towards you? Think about his power, his strength, and yet he perfectly controlled himself to use that strength for your benefit. How has Jesus showed you patience? How many thousands of times have we failed and forgotten him? He's been patient. How has Jesus borne with you through all kinds of things? How has Jesus forgiven you? How has he showed you grace? If you're in Christ, Jesus has done all this for you, all the time, <laughs> perfectly. So as you encounter difficult people today, <laughs> what will be your starting point? Will you start with the difficult person? <laughs> Or will you start with the way the Lord has loved you as a difficult person? And think about what Paul is saying. With the Spirit's help, we're putting to death the sins of desire that destroy us from the inside. We're putting to death the sins of division that destroy our community. And we're putting on Christ. We see how Jesus has related to us. And now we're called to put these things on in our relationships with others. So our Christian community should give the world a picture of the new self in Christ. And not just the new self the, the whole new community, the, the whole new humanity, the body of Christ. Paul says in verse 14, and above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So why does love always rise to the top? Why does love bind everything together? Well, God's word says things about love that it doesn't say about anything else. And these things it says about love aren't really said in any other religion or approach to life. God is love. It's all about loving God supremely and loving your neighbor as yourself. We love because he first loved us. The world will know that we are his disciples if we love one another. These things are unique to Christianity. So in a sense, we could forget Paul's list that we just talked about, and in a summary way, just say, how's our love? Is our life a reflection of Christ's love for us? And love is the most powerful demonstration of what I said a minute ago about the unity of the fruit of the Spirit. You think about 1 Corinthians 13, that famous passage that we think is just a wedding passage. What is love? Paul can't even define it without referring to the other aspects of the fruit of the Spirit. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love bears all things. He talks about faith, hope, and love, but then he says love believes all things. Love endures all things. So think about when Jesus washed the disciples' feet, what was it an example of? Was it an example of humility? 
or kindness or compassion or forgiveness? Yes. Was an example, maybe a supreme example of love? Yes. So see that. It's really about putting on, receiving, putting on, and living out the love of Christ. I've started asking my son, Will, at night. I saw someone post this kind of blessing. Uh, Will, do you know that I love you? Hopefully he'll respond. (laughs) Do you know that I love you no matter the good things you do? Do you know that I love you no matter the bad things you do? Who else loves you like that? Hopefully he'll say, God, Jesus, rest in his love. So brothers, do you know that you are God's chosen ones, holy and beloved? Are you resting in his love? It's, It's his love flowing through you to others. That's how you know you're putting on Christ with his help. So in the last three verses, Paul says more about our life together. It feels like he's kind of scatter shooting, but I'll ask the question this way. As we put on Christ, what should our life look like in the church? First, the peace of Christ should be ruling in our hearts. Look at verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. The image here of this ruling peace is a strong one. Uh, Multiple commentators say it's like the picture is (laughs) the peace that Christ gives like an umpire (laughs) in our lives and relationships. And the games back in, you know, the Roman Empire were a lot wilder than our sports. So umpire is pretty important. But think about a good umpire keeping a baseball game under control. And now think about a bad umpire who loses control and it's just a brawl. Paul's saying that the peace of Christ in our hearts is like a good umpire. Because of what Jesus has done for us, we have peace with God. And because we have peace with God, we have peace with our brothers and sisters in Christ. But that peace is not always the controlling principle. The sins of division are still real and tempting. And so Paul tells us to let the peace of Christ rule or umpire in our hearts. One commentator sums it up this way. He says, In making your decisions, in choosing between alternatives, in settling conflicts of will— a concern to preserve the inward and communal peace that Christ gave and gives should be your controlling principle. Is that how we navigate church life? In all these tensions and challenges, man, my, one of my primary concerns is the peace of Christ. So the world's always at war, but we know as Christians the peace of Christ. And then if the world sees war inside the church, I mean, how much of a disconnect is that for them? If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. That's Romans 12, 18. Strive for peace with everyone. That's Hebrews 12, 14. So brothers, is the peace of Christ ruling in our hearts? Are we contributing to the unity of the body of Christ or are we breaking it apart? Second, the word of Christ should be dwelling in us richly. Look at verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. It shouldn't be surprising at all that Paul wants us to have a life filled with the word. Our coming to Christ was rooted in the word of Christ. Our walking in Christ is rooted in the word of Christ. Being built up and established in the faith is rooted in the word of Christ. Life in Christ is never divorced from the word of Christ. What is our plan to live a life where the word of Christ is richly dwelling in us? What what I want you to see here is that this is not a solo project. We often think it is. Just me and Jesus and my Bible, right? 
But Paul's vision for a word-soaked life, if you will, is a community project. And that's why it's so good that we're here together. And I love seeing you guys come week after week, dig in together. We are to teach and admonish one another. Certain people are gifted to teach, but in a healthy church, we're all encouraging one another in the word. And notice, this doesn't just happen when we speak. <laughs> guys are getting uncomfortable. This happens when we sing. Men don't love to sing all the time. But Paul seems to say that if we're not singing together with thankfulness in our hearts to God, we're missing out on being filled with the word of Christ. Some of my favorite nights have been with the elders and deacons when we gather in the chapel and it's just men. And we sing and we pray. It's powerful. Maybe we should do that one Tuesday morning if the voices wake up fast enough. So songs are not scripture. But who could argue the power of a song that's biblically sound and theologically rich and Christ-centered and beautiful? How many sermons can you recite for me word for word? Zero. That's not to take a shot at sermons, but how many hymns or songs can you sing for me? Dozens? Hundreds? Maybe some of you a thousand? <laughs> if we want the word of Christ to dwell in us richly, we can't go it alone. And apparently we can't do it without music. So think about that. And finally, as we put on Christ, we're doing everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. That's verse 17. Throughout the day, we change clothes. I put on one thing to come here, probably put on another thing shortly, but we put on clothes to sleep, clothes to work, clothes to exercise, clothes to relax. But when we put on Christ, we wear him everywhere. We're living in Christ all the time. So today, whether you're job hunting or working or retired, whether you're single or married or widowed or divorced, whether you're at home or at the office or at the gym or at the store or at the church, you have an opportunity to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. If you've put on Christ, it's no longer about doing everything in your name by your strength. Now it's the joy and the freedom of doing everything in his name, by his strength. And we seek to do that, as we do that, the steady note of our lives should be thankfulness. And this is another time in this short letter that Paul has mentioned thankfulness. In verse 15, Paul said, and be thankful. Just sort of like threw that in there. <laughs> and now he says it again. Gratitude to God is such a powerful weapon in so many ways. So with Thanksgiving right around the corner, brothers, are you giving thanks? And for what are you giving thanks? Are you overflowing with gratitude? Let me just mention a few things that we've seen, maybe just in Colossians. The miracle of your salvation. The wonder of our union with Christ. This reality that the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ. For being God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, are you giving thanks? That he's given you the power to put sin to death. He's given you the power to put on Christ. You're giving thanks for the love of Christ poured out in your heart. For the peace of Christ ruling in your heart. For the word of Christ dwelling in you richly. And then for the joy of now I get to do everything. <laughs> in the name of the Lord Jesus. Giving thanks to God the Father through him. So in a few chapters Paul has given us enough really to be thankful for eternity. And it would be great, I think, if it's appropriate 
spend some time with your group today just giving thanks in prayer to the Lord for the wonderful riches of his grace that we're experiencing. I'm gonna pray for you now and send you to your groups and I hope it's a really sweet conversation. Father, thank you for this portion of your word. Again, we pray that you'd help us to understand it and by your grace, apply it. Lord, thank you for all you've done that we might know the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ. Lord, today show us what it looks like to put sin to death and to put on Christ. Would you help us to experience the expulsive power of a new affection? Lord, we love you. Help us to live for your glory today. In Jesus' name, amen. Hope to see you next week if you're able to be here. Have a great morning.